0: 59, Connie's. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a July 16, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind this story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. If you're in Wichita, Kansas, and you smell Mexican food, there's a good chance it's coming from Connie's. Connie and Rafael Lopez, immigrants from Mexico, started this tiny cafe in 1963 to serve workers at the nearby meatpacking plants. Somewhere along the line though, things changed, and Connie's became a Wichita tradition. Join Museum Assistant Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine several items used by the Lopez family. What is the magic ingredient that makes Connie's the oldest family-owned Mexican restaurant in Wichita? And was Connie the first restauranteer to make servers wear flair? Later, we shed some light on the shady business of diamond production when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. This week, we connect White, an editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the infamous De Beers Diamond Cartel. Did White purchase a De Beers diamond for his wife? It's De Beers. Did he have any choice? But first, Connie's. Rebecca. Hi, Merle. Today, we're going to talk about several items that were used at Connie's Restaurant, which was the first family owned Mexican restaurant in Wichita. And uh, Wichita is located in south central Kansas. Specifically, we are going to be looking at three items um, a server's pin, a bean pot, and a tortilla warmer.
1: And we're going to make people hungry, I'm afraid.
0: Because <laughs> we get hungry every time we research yeah, this. We
1: do, and yeah, we're going to talk about food a lot today. <laughs>
0: Connie's was started by Rafael and Concepcion, or Connie Lopez, in Wichita in 1963. Uh, but their journey to get to Wichita was, was pretty rough and a little bit interesting. Uh, Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about this couple that founded Connie's?
1: The, the couple, both of them were born in Mexico in different states. Um, Rafael was born in Nuevo León, which is close to the, or along the Texas border, and Concepcion was born in central Mexico along the uh, Pacific coastline. Now, um... They were born at a very tumultuous time in Mexican history. It was during the Mexican Revolution in the teens. The revolution itself was very violent, uh, roving guerrilla bands. I mean, just it went on for a decade, and it really hit rural people hard, especially in the central part of of Mexico, which is where Concepcion was from. Um, From what I've read, wages were uh, around the year 1900, wages were 1,400% lower than your average American laborer Um, and (laughs) that's a stunning amount I mean they had rising food prices rising prices for all the necessary stuff if you could get it during a ten-year long Civil War Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, and their their uh, wages were terrible Uh, so and then after the Civil War they had another couple of decades of severe economic troubles so um, What attracted them to the U.S. was a booming economy, stable environment. You know, we weren't in the middle of a civil war. Um, Connie and um, Rafael met and married in Texas. They had a child there. And uh, they, Raphael enlisted in the U.S. Army, he served in World War II honorably, and um, they were living in Texas when some friends of theirs invited them to come up and visit in Wichita, Mm -hmm. and they came and fell in love with the city, they moved there in the early 50s, uh, and for the next decade they made a living in the same manner that they had um, in Texas. Raphael was a barber with the military. Um, And Connie was cooking at church socials and fundraisers and getting so many compliments on her cooking that Raphael bought her a restaurant and they opened it in the early 1960s in a part of Wichita that's pretty industrial still today. it's uh i guess you could say industrial and working class and the industry is a lot of meat packing which um would make a lot of sense because a lot of um the hispanics in who came to kansas would work in the railroads or the meat packing industries some in farming too early on in the 20th century
0: Connie serves Mexican food um, and this type of cuisine is fairly standard now. most cities you go to you will see a couple of Mexican restaurants, uh, but it hasn't always been that way. When did Mexican food as a cuisine when did it become popular in the u s at what time if you were if you were in Connie's when it opened in 18, in nineteen sixty three like what kind of patrons would you see there
1: well Mexican food became started to become really popular in the u s in the 1950s and You know, it's still not easy to find good Mexican restaurants in some U.S. cities. I think a lot of it depends on the Hispanic population. Here in Kansas, uh, if you like Mexican food, you're really lucky because we have a lot of really good restaurants that are family-based, that operate in these major cities. Um, But that wasn't always the case in the U.S. So really, it's a post-World War II phenomenon. And a lot of that has to do with this great number of people migrating from Mexico into the U.S. to escape all the... The turmoil that was going on south of the Mexican-U.S. border. Mm -hmm. Um, So Connie's in 63, though, probably didn't have a lot of traditional Mexican dishes on it because the family said the reason they called it Connie's and not Concepcion's or something else was to attract an American clientele. And what you'd see going on among Mexican restaurants at that time period, especially in Texas, was Tex-Mex. So what Connie's was Almost certainly serving in the 1960s in Wichita was Tex-Mex. So all of those dishes had their roots in traditional Mexican. Cuisine, but they had a Texas kind of cowboy kick to them—a flavor where that, there was this amalgam of influences coming together in Texas. Um, so, although you know tortillas are and have been critical to Mexican cuisine for centuries, the chimichanga is a pretty sorry. That's my personal. <laughs> I know favorite. it's your favorite. That's a pretty recent phenomenon, and it has to do with that blending of cultures and and really. You know, no cuisine operates in isolation, or very few of them do. So you'd see even in Mexico, the Spaniards, um, the the conquistadors, influenced Mexican cuisine as early as the 1520s. So you see, you know, a lot of centuries of melding of Spanish and Mexican cuisine in Mexico before it even got to to Texas and became Tex-Mex.
0: So... You know what we think of as Mexican food today is is a combination between Spanish, Spanish, you know, Spanish conquistadors, Aztec food. Then it went to you know a little then, bit of
1: Mayan <laughs> thrown in, a little
0: bit of Mayan, and then and it would make sense that um, that Connie and Raphael when they're in Texas they kind of pick up the Tex-Mex tradition, sure, and then bring it to Wichita and that's what they serve because that's much more, I guess. Marketable, marketable to a Wichita palate than the Aztec Spanish version.
1: Definitely. Are you hungry yet? I'm getting hungry. I'm
0: getting hungry. Yeah. Thinking about avocado. You said Jimmy Chonga. Now I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like you said, Raphael came from the state in Mexico known as Nuevo Leon. And Connie came from Jalisco, is that correct? Jalisco. Jalisco. Is the food at Connie's, is it influenced by any of these regions? Sometimes cuisine can be, you can, you can sort of track the origin of a cuisine by looking at the ingredient, ingredients involved. And I wondered if, if Connie's was influenced by these regions she grew up in.
1: Well, Connie's passed away, Concepcion's passed away, so we can't ask her if she was. Um, I would imagine she would have been influenced by the cuisine she grew up in, and that was Jalisco. You know, the cilantro was a common ingredient in <clears throat> traditional dishes in Jalisco, pork... Corn, obviously. So she probably was influenced, but from everything I've heard, though, um, she was a very savvy businesswoman, and she loved to cook. She she made handmade tortillas for a long time, until it got to be too much for her because the restaurant became so popular. So I think there was a lot of influence there, but you know, since Mexican food in the excuse me in the '60s was very new to American palates, there had to be a lot of uh, concessions. To our our uh, taste buds, uh-huh. and so you see, especially on Connie's menus today, a lot of the traditional stuff that would be highly influenced by Tex-Mex, but have its its roots in Mexican cuisine, like. Um, Fajitas, um, that's very Tex-Mex. Tacos, very traditional, but what we think of as a taco is not. The word taco and and the idea of taco as a food is very traditional, but, you know, ours is different. Um, Enchiladas. So if I was in
0: Mexico and ordered a taco, it wouldn't look like what I get at Taco Bell? uh,
1: Entirely. Well, it would depend on, yeah, what the restaurant was, but probably (laughs) very, you know, if the restaurant catered to American travelers, probably Mm -hmm. would look somewhat similar. But, yeah, no, I think if you were in a rural area... Taco would not be not the Taco um, not, Bell
0: type taco. Not
1: Taco Bell. Not the U-shaped tortilla shell with uh, you know a lot of sour cream in it. Um, hmm.
0: So these objects that we're looking at were they used to um, decorate the restaurant or were they actually used for cooking and serving? You know, sometimes you know if you had a restaurant, there's stuff like nailed to the walls, yeah. stapled <laughs> to the walls. And I'm curious, were these, were this, was this pin bean pot and tortilla warmer, was it actually used?
1: Um, only the pin was used in the restaurant it is a lapel pin that was worn by the servers who were almost all Connie's um, granddaughters at one time at least and uh, a lot of family so the lapel pin that we're looking at is silver and it's actually not very big probably about an inch or two in in height and it's shaped like flatware a fork a knife and a spoon um, that they would wear pinned to their um, garments to designate that they were the servers so that was the only thing we have that was definitely from the restaurant. The other two items, the bean pot and the tortilla warmer, were from the home of Connie and Raphael.
0: Oh, they were actually used at the restaurant? No.
1: Uh, the Yeah, the bean pot was used to cook, Connie used that to cook beans for her people at home, her family at home. And the tortilla warmer was to keep tortillas warm. And you know, since she handmade tortillas in the restaurant for as long as she could, and she was very good at making tortillas, so she was still making tortillas for her family at home. And this was a way of Keeping them warm at the table um, until
0: everybody was ready to consume them. Can you explain a little bit about what a tortilla warmer looks like?
1: It looks like it's a square bit of fabric uh, with a flap that covers it. I mean, it's like a case um, and it's made of, of fabric and it's embroidered with some nice designs that look what we would consider to be Mexican mm-hmm. um, designs. And the bean pot is crockery, terracotta with handles, a round pot, and it's painted with really brightly colored designs. Um, Looks pretty traditional.
0: And you, uh, you've actually eaten at Connie's restaurant before, yes. right? And and from what I understand, it's pretty well-known in Wichita?
1: It's Yeah, it is. In fact, um, people can go online and, and look at some of the restaurant blogs for Wichita. Um, yeah, it is, it is totally a Wichita tradition. I mean, the Connie's Mexico Cafe website is exactly right, saying it's a tradition. It's still in its original location, this brick building in this industrial area, and um, Three different trucks have run into the building over the years, so you look at the one wall, and it's been patched up many times. And I think that's part of the legend of Connie's is that, you know, the family keeps reopening this restaurant, even though trucks continually seem to run into it. Uh, maybe the truckers like the food. I don't, I don't know. know. Um, but yeah, you they don't c-
0: want to wait in line.
1: <laughs> you go into Connie's today, and you'll see an interesting mix. I mean, originally it was for the labor laborers at the meat packing industries nearby that they opened the restaurant. But now, because Connie's has been around forever, people of all economic classes, social classes go to Connie's and you see quite a mix in there. Um, And my mouth is watering just thinking about (sighs) it.
0: (laughs) Well, um, the small metal lapel pin, um, like you said, is in the shape of a fork, knife, and spoon. And while looking at this pin, I realized that even Connie's made their servers wear flair. Mm. Uh, what is the logic of flare? <laughs> Why do they have to have a pin of flatware on their clothes?
1: Well, uh, the flare just to make sh- to remind our listeners that comes the the term comes from the movie Office Space, right? right Where yeah. there's this waitress played by Jennifer Aniston who's wearing 37 pieces of yeah, flair. She, she doesn't but like to talk
0: about her flare. <laughs> she doesn't
1: like to talk about it. Uh, her flare is like, ask me about our, you know whatever, green margarita. Uh, but I have to admire Connie's because they use something very serious. It's not a button that says something about the latest trend. It's flatware, you know, mm-hmm. so the the waitresses could wear, I don't think they had uniforms, they could wear different clothes, but they were distinguished from the clientele by wearing this flatware on their lapels and boy, that's serious stuff. Flatware means eating. You're there to chow down, that's not true. to promote the next newest, latest thing and and uh, and the servers wore that flatware flair <laughs> until that her granddaughters finally said no we don't want to marry that, wear that anymore grandma that's enough um, so we we ended up getting two pins
0: do you think we have the complete pin set here or somewhere out there is there a matching <laughs> uh, small plate and a margarita glass
1: <laughs> mm, gosh now you're really making me hungry uh, you yeah, know that's a good question Mer. we'll have to contact the family no we'll I th- have I to think an we'll have to keep an eye out for yeah matching
0: flair. All right, Rebecca, well, thanks for telling us about Connie's Restaurant, and uh, thanks for making me hungry.
1: Yeah, uh, how do you feel about Mexican for lunch?
0: Let's do it. Good. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. And joining me today is the museum's assistant director, Rebecca Martin. Hi. And uh, on her maiden voyage is <laughs> uh, curator Laurel Fritz. Hello. This week's challenge was to connect William Allen White, the Kansas native, famous Republican activist and political extraordinaire, to the De Beers Company, the diamond trading company. Cartel, monopoly, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so first, I'll just give you a little general background on the De Beers company. Which, might I add, um, don't go looking into the background of the De Beers company.
1: <laughs> Others have done it before you.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just you realize that you know they're a very imperial British company. Mm-hmm. Um, the De Beers Diamond Company was founded in 1888 by a man named Cecil Rhodes, or Cecil. Cecil. Cecil Rhodes. Cecil.
1: Doesn't that sound like a British pronunciation? Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Cecil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And he was a British-born British mining magnate. Um, the company is actually headquartered in Johannesburg, South Africa, and they specialize in the exploration of diamonds, diamond mining, and diamond trading.
1: To the exclusivity of all others.
0: <laughs> pretty much, they are the pretty much the only show, the only the only show in town. They're really the uh, the only major diamond company. Um, at one time, it was believed that this cartel controlled roughly ninety percent of the world's diamond market. That's a lot. And that's speculated. You know, it's it, there's no hard, solid numbers on on how much they controlled. Um, Over the last century, the company, and, and this is a little bit why they're so successful at it, is because they kind of mastered this brilliant marketing strategy of connecting diamonds Uh, specifically diamonds, to the concepts of love and commitment. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, if if a diamond is not shown, then, like, love and commitment is lacking.
1: Gosh, what does that say about my marriage? (laughs) (laughs) Not wearing a diamond?
0: That says your husband is not willing to support the De Beers Company.
1: Oh, okay.
0: And their cartelish ways.
1: (laughs) Rimes with hellish.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um. This company's uh, marketing strategy is probably best illustrated by the company's slogan: "the The diamond is forever," mm-hmm. um, like apparently love should should be like a diamond and last forever. Yeah, and that absolutely. that slogan was originally started in 1947, which actually apparently indicates that a slogan is forever as well. And
1: that's amazing in marketing years. <laughs> that it's is like pretty good. <laughs> the dinosaurs.
0: Uh, the cartel was uh, just a little bit of there. <laughs> I guess a little bit of the shady side. The cartel was charged with price fixing in two thousand four and uh, they've been suspected to be the large the world's largest purchaser of conflict diamonds.
1: And what does that mean, conflict diamonds?
0: That means it's a little questionable where the diamonds came from and how they were required uh, and oftentimes of the diamonds the diamond or the, the mining of diamonds, the money and revenue that that's made from that is recycled back into um, civil wars or some sort of conflict in the nation. Rebecca, I believe you have a solution. You have a way to connect William Allen White to the De Beers Diamond Company.
1: Yeah, it really, uh, it's, you know, it's easy when you have somebody as famous as William Allen White. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So De Beers, as we all know, was founded by Cecil Rhodes. Uh, He and a friend invested in an old mine on a farm run by the De Beers brothers in South Africa in the 19th century. And uh, we know, you know, all about the colonialism and you know how um, so they've engaged in some interesting marketing practices. I, one of my favorite quotes uh, of Cecil Rhodes is, is that he said, "I would annex the planets if I could." That's nice. that's the uber colonialist attitude yeah. right there. Yeah. And um, some people probably know that at one time an African country was named after him, okay. Rhodesia. It's now Zimbabwe, and in the news again.
0: I'm telling you, you know, you know, you are an imperialist when a country is named. For you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, so we got De Beers founded by Cecil Rhodes in his will when he died in the early 1900s. He established the Rhodes Scholarship, um, and Rhodes Scholars uh, are come from all over the world. Especially, uh, apparently, the qualifier is you have to be from. A British colony or a former British colony to qualify for the scholarship. Do you really? Uh-huh. Is that still, that's still or Germany. Qualified. Well, that's what the website says. I Not that I am qualified for an application, but I checked it out. Um, or from Germany. You can be from Germany also. Um, and that funds uh, your your study at Oxford University, which Rhodes uh, was a student at um, when he was young. So when I, I saw that, you know, he founded the Rhodes Scholarship, I knew there had to be a Rhodes scholar who knew William Allen. White. And sure enough, one popped up really fast. Christopher Marley, an Amer- or Morley, an American journalist and a writer, written, wrote for the New York Evening Post, the Saturday Review of Literature. And he was one of the first judges for the Book of the Month Club. And guess who else was one of the first judges for the Book of the Month Club? Mm. William Allen White. Yep. Uh, they were both judges on the editorial board. And what they did was they would meet once a month and vote on books that were submitted to them by publishers. And then they would select one to be sent to members of the Book of the Month Club. Um, And what I like about this was that um, Wright uh, was the only Midwesterner on the editorial board, you know, clearly very famous, very well-known person in his own right.
0: I think the Book of the Month Club sounds kind of hokey and sounds, I don't know, like, you know, something little old ladies would be doing or something. But I think it was a fairly powerful organization that really, I mean, think of a contemporary or, you know, a a version of Oprah Winfrey's Book of the Month Club. Yes, that's really a good analogy. it really sets off somebody's career. Yeah,
1: it, it was. Very much the Oprah book club of its time, and it's still around today, but yeah, they were considered, uh, apparently, a lot of historians consider them to have revived an interest in American literature in the 20th century. They were that influential, um, had tons of, of members in, in their day, probably, you know, especially the high, I think the high point would probably be in the 40s or the 50s. Hmm. Uh, one of the things I liked about uh, Morley, what Morley said about White on as a judge on the Book of the Month Club was he said his judgment was very bad five out of six times, but he liked to hear his comments because they were witty and well phrased. And so I found a comment... Um, that White wrote in 1941 about one of the Book of the Month Club selections that they were reviewing. The book's named Captain Paul. And so this is what White said. Still think Captain Paul is a waste of time, even if the last chapter is the best tale of a sea battle I ever read. But not worth waiting through 200,000 words of brackish dishwater. However, wow. if Chris Morley likes dishwater because it's briny, let's take it. So mm-hmm. there's the connection to Morley. So <laughs> wow. if you leave out Book of the Month Club and just go directly between Morley and William Allen White, that's three degrees. That's kind of scary that, uh, you know, White was that close to De Beers. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty impressive. I uh, I also have a solution. Do you? Yes. As you said, De Beers was founded by Cecil Rhodes, and he was kind of the epitome of ruthless colonial power. <laughs> he was unbelievably wealthy and influential. In his 1897 book entitled Following the Equator, Mark Twain referenced Cecil Rhodes, who I I think Cecil Rhodes is obviously known in England and known throughout the colonies, but he was one of those few people that was kind of known globally. And uh, Mark Twain knew of him. Um, And this book that he wrote was basically Mark Twain traveled around the world, and he kept a travel log. And right around when he came around uh, South Africa, he apparently had saw some of the uh, ramifications of what – Life under Cecil Rhodes was like. Yeah. Um, and Twain noted uh, Rhodes' influence in the African continent. Uh, he was not impressed with Rhodes' blatant racism and imperialism and wrote of him I admire him, I frankly confess it, and when ha- and when his time comes, I shall buy a piece of rope for a keepsake.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, yeah, Twain, uh, Twain wasn't a big fan of his. Mm-hmm. Um, William Allen White was actually a fan of Mark Twain, and we brought this up before. Yeah. And in 1907, William Allen White actually met Twain at a hotel in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was in Twain's Twain's twilight.
1: Twilight years, <laughs> yeah. Twilight years,
0: and he was a little, he was getting a little loopy. and, and I think uh, <laughs> Didn't he
1: monopolize um, the conversation? Yeah. Was that part of the reason yeah. he was not impressed when he met him?
0: Yeah, so William Allen White was a little disappointed with someone who had been his childhood hero, yeah. or one of his favorite writers of childhood. So, yeah, so De Beers... Wow. To Cecil Rhodes, to uh, Twain, to Twain, uh, or to William Allen White. Yeah. So that's about three degrees.
1: Uh-huh. Wow, again, very scary yeah. close. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very yeah. well done. Very well done, guys.
0: <laughs> uh, Laurel, would you like to give us the next challenge?
1: I'd love to. The next challenge will be to connect William Allen White to the Gateway of the West, the St. Louis Arch. You know, I was in St. Louis this past weekend for the Cubs-Cardinals game at Bush Stadium, and I decided to visit the Arch before the game. And when I was there, I learned that it was completed in 1968, and the Arch is considered a modern engineering marvel commemorating the Louisiana Purchase, which led to the establishment of the American West. Uh Uh-huh. And eventually the state of Kansas. (laughs) Yes, the most important part. Yeah, exactly. Who won the game? Well oh, we don't want to go there. Okay, not a Cubs fan. No, no, no. It, it was Saint Saint uh, Louis. Took the took the, hit, took the uh-huh. hit.
0: All right. So if you think you can connect William Allen White to this giant uh, half version of a McDonald's sign, just send your chain of connection to podcasts at KSHS.org. That is podcast with an S. Concludes episode 59, Connie's. If you would like to see images of the items used at this famous Wichita Mexican cafe, check out our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Join us in two weeks when we examine a wood block connected to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. This unassuming fragment was once part of the Surratt Gallows, which was used in 1865 to execute Mary Surratt and four other individuals that conspired with John Wilkes Booth to assassinate the president and members of his cabinet. The plot fell apart, but the Gallows didn't. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society real people, real stories